turn to uh, Psalm 7. Let's look at another few verses. We'll begin in verse 11 in just a moment. Um, we're starting off by looking at this and saying what it is that the wicked, what the world doesn't know, or if they do know it, they don't believe it. And in this case, we would say uh, uh, ignorance is not really bliss, is it? And this is why we are to tell the story, go tell it on the mountain, we said a while ago. Uh, basically, we're to be witnesses for Christ because the world either doesn't know or they don't believe it. And uh, this particular part of the psalm picks up on some things that they really need to know. I think if you were to talk to the average person, especially the average American, do you believe in God? Most of them are going to say yes. Now, whether it's the God of the Bible or not is a different question, but uh, they will say yes. I think it's uh, the last poll I saw, some 67% of Americans say they believe in God. And depending, of course, upon what uh, your theological persuasion is, your denomination, your background, and even your generation makes a difference in all of that. Older people tend to believe in the existence of God more than younger people do. Protestants and conservative denominations more than some of the other ones. And, uh, you know, that's just, we're, we're used to that, especially in this part of the country. However, if you talk to people about it, you're going to find that most of them have no trouble believing in an a all-powerful being who is loving, kind, gentle. In fact, some, I even heard somebody say one time that God doesn't judge. Well, that's about as far from the truth as you could ever get, right? And uh, he accepts everybody and all of that. Well, um, here's what uh, George Barna says. Uh, a few years ago, most Americans do not expect to experience hell, at least firsthand, okay? And um, just one half of 1% expect to go to hell upon their death. Now, what did Jesus say about that? Few there be that find the way, right? The broad way leads to destruction, the narrow way it leads to um, uh, the narrow way leads to life. The broad way leads to destruction. And uh, he also said things like many are called, but few are chosen. And even on the broad and the narrow way, he said, few there be that uh, find the way. And so when you talk to people and uh, they say, well, I believe there is a hell, but only one half of one percent expect to go to hell at uh, Houston we have a problem something's not right about all of this nearly two-thirds of Americans 64 percent believe they will go to heaven and one in 20 adults five percent claim that they will come back as another life form while the same proportion five percent contend that they will simply cease to exist and I think uh, probably since this poll was taken and research was done we might even find that those numbers have changed in other words most Americans really do not believe 
that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except by Him. In fact, even a lot of church-going believers are not real sure about that. The Baptist Messenger of Oklahoma one time wrote about that and called it creeping universalism even in our Southern Baptist churches. The numbers are dropping where we're not really sure that people who don't trust Jesus are not going to go to heaven. And so that dilutes our message. It takes away the power. And I think it also takes away our uh, motivation for witnessing. If we're not really sure that people are going to die and go to hell without Christ, why should we send missionaries? Why should we go out and witness? Why should we bother on any of those things if that is not true? So, our text. Let's let uh, the Holy Spirit speak through the prophet King David in Psalm 7, 11 through 13 and tell me if what society and culture and even churches believe sounds anything like this. God is a just judge. There's that awful word, isn't it? And God is angry with the wicked every day. Verse 12. If he, notice that's a lowercase h, that's not talking about God, it's talking about the wicked that God is angry with. If he does not turn back, then he, that's an uppercase h, speaking of God, so if the wicked don't turn back, then God will sharpen his sword and he bends his bow and makes it ready. Verse 13, he also prepares for himself instruments of death he makes his arrows into fiery shafts okay does that sound like most people's concept of God and uh, we don't want to just harp on all of this and make everybody think that uh, everything is just lightning bolts and thunder and all of that because it is true I mean John three sixteen, right and uh, we think about the mercy of God and we think about God being willing to save those who repent and put their trust in the Lord. But what is it that gives that teeth, I guess we would say? And that is the fact that there is a judgment and that God does hate sin and that there is a real place called hell. Now, how are we going to get out of the kingdom of darkness, Paul said, and into the kingdom of light? How are we going to get from a state of disfavor with God to a state of favor with God, undeserved favor or the grace of God, unless we really understand the human condition and the situation that sinners are in. Now they don't believe it. They don't understand it. They may not even know it. But as believers we really should. This is the Bible. This is the word of God. So let's think about these things. What is it that they don't know. That we really should know. And number one would be this. Their guilt. They don't really understand. We live in a world that just despises feeling guilty. We'll do everything we can, twist everything around. We'll lie to ourselves. We'll lie to other people. We'll do whatever we can because guilt is the big sin right now. That's the worst thing that could ever happen. And yet the Bible says that those who are lost are guilty before God, that all sinners uh, are guilty before God. In other words... In verse 11, when it says God is a just judge, 
David is telling us God knows everything about you perfectly. Nothing is hidden from him. Now, how many people do you suppose uh, were living this morning and this afternoon, their life was, I don't know, perfectly acceptable? They're playing video games, they're watching TV, they're eating lunch, they're interacting with other people, and tonight, after the sun goes down, they're involved in some sort of criminal activity, some sort of illegal activity, some sort of immoral activity. Well, we all know that that's true. In fact, uh, your mom always told you when you were a teenager, get home at a certain time because nothing good happens after what? <laughs> you have, we've got different moms, don't we? And uh, different times. I mean, it just, we know that the later it gets, the more crime and the more that there is. Why? Because we think that hiding under the cover of darkness is going to enable us to get away with things. Well, it might with humans. They may not see you coming. They may not see the danger that lurks out there, and it may give a criminal the advantage or somebody who's immoral an advantage on all of that. But uh, that doesn't work with God. In fact, Psalm 139, love that passage, verse 11 and 12 David says, if I say, surely the darkness shall fall upon me, literally shall hide me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the light, excuse me, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the night are both alike to you. This is what they don't understand, but we certainly should. When it says that God is a just judge, in verse 11, a just judge, the first thing we need to understand is that he actually does judge. So someone who says, well, God is just all accepting and he just loves everybody and everything and we're all just great and he just pulls us all in is not a clear understanding of God. He does judge. He has made definite statements about what is good or bad, right or wrong, even as it pertains to us. And we don't like that. We want to say that truth is relative, that there is no real morality, and it's whatever we feel, whatever we think, whatever society uh, comes up with. And uh, no, that's not true. God is a judge. But also notice it says in my translation, a just judge, a just judge. Some translations like the ESV say he is a righteous judge. I want you to think about this. What that means is whatever judgment God makes is always right. Why? Because he knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing in your past, nothing in your present, nothing in your mind, nothing in your motives, nothing in your intentions, none of that is hidden from him. Now, an earthly judge can't say that. An earthly judge has to ascertain uh, what you did and... Um, what you meant and what you intended and all of that type of thing and has to have the help of a jury and there are prosecuting attorneys and defense attorneys to help them all come to that decision. And sometimes they are wrong. Sometimes people go to the um, death chamber 
and they're innocent. It happens, doesn't it? Some people are imprisoned and they shouldn't be imprisoned. And later they find through DNA testing that the person was not guilty. And my heart breaks for somebody who has spent decades in prison and they weren't guilty. Or somebody who is executed that is not guilty. That's a terrible, terrible thing. But it is a fact of human life. In fact, you and I have made judgments about people that have been wrong. I know this is what they meant. All right? Someone said to me one time that uh, there was a situation that came up in the church. And they said, I'm 99% sure that that happened. And I said, so you don't really know. And they looked at me real funny because 99% is not perfect. There's a 1% chance. It's slim maybe, but it is there. And God is never 99% sure. He knows everything about everyone that has ever lived and he knows all of the hidden things you can't hide in the darkness and you can't hide behind your words you can't hide behind uh, you know a smile or anything like that the Lord knows everything that is on your mind so think about this God cannot be fooled he cannot be caught off guard God cannot be manipulated and God cannot be persuaded to reverse his decision. You can't talk him out of it. God cannot be bribed and God doesn't make deals. There are no plea bargains with God. Okay? The world doesn't understand that. They think they're going to be able to talk their way out of it, make a deal with God, and show God that the good outweighs the bad, and they really aren't that bad of a person, even though the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. But they're going to proclaim their righteousness when they stand before God, and they're going to be judged. But they don't know, or they don't believe, or understand all of that. And so somehow, we've got to get the word out, you're in trouble without Jesus it's not just that you need Jesus to make your life a little better you are in trouble without Jesus and that's an eternal thing so that brings us to point number two uh, their danger God hates sin more than you can understand he certainly hates it more than you do we may have a hatred to some degree for the sin in our own life and the sin that others commit, but it is nothing compared to the holy hatred that a holy God has towards sin. It says, and God is angry with the wicked every day. And again, because he's a just judge, he's not wrong in doing that. His hatred is not based upon a feeling or a whim or something like that. He is justifiably angry with the wicked every day now if God hates sin and he is angry towards sin I wonder what went on in the world today out of seven billion people that would get his attention there's a lot of sin out there there's a lot of sin going on I contributed to it as well as you did but uh, we think about all of that and that's what God sees when he looks at this earth and the people that he created. Just think about how much sin can be generated by 7 billion people worldwide. Some of it was murder. Some of it was rape. Some of it was drunkenness. Some of it was stealing. Some of it was using his name in vain. Some of it was lusting in their heart after a person of the opposite sex or maybe the same sex. Some of it was having um, 
hatred in your heart towards somebody else, which Jesus said is the same as murder. Some of it is bitterness. Some of it is ungratefulness. And on and on and on we could go. Think about all of those things that rise up before the Lord. No wonder he's angry with the wicked every day. That's a lot of sin. And that's a lot of offense toward a holy God who has done nothing but good to all of that. And think about what that means. That uh, the wicked, God is angry with them, therefore they reap what they sow. There's just not much mercy out there for them. The Bible says in John 3, 17, that they are condemned, not someday, but they're condemned already. They are already under the condemnation of a holy God. They don't even know it. And their destiny is the same as the devil and his angels. Don't ever miss the point that whenever we think about ultimate sin and the awfulest sin, we would think of the devil and his demons. And yet Jesus told us that those who are lost are going to be cast in the same lake of fire, the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Boy, nobody knows that, or very few do. And they don't believe it if they hear it. But you and I, our hearts ought to break. And we ought to be moved by the fact that people that we know and people that we love and people that we come in contact with are going to receive the same judgment as the devil himself. And just so we all understand, the lake of fire is not the place where the devil goes around poking people with a pitchfork. It is the place of his doom and of his punishment. And people don't see that. and They don't really believe that. And they never think that they are bad enough to really go there. That's why only one half of 1% of Americans think that they will face hell firsthand. And so when we think about this situation... This is something that ought to move us with compassion. I don't know how we could be ambivalent about this. I don't know how we could be apathetic about this. I don't know how we could just look at this and go, yeah, that's right, amen, preacher, and not have it change anything about it. It ought to change the way we look at people. It ought to change the way that we pray for them. It ought to make us more motivated to tell them about Jesus and to look for opportunities about Christ because this is a horrific thing. And number three, what they don't know is that their only hope, God is merciful to the repentant. Their only hope is God is merciful to the repentant. Now they think their only hope is try harder, do better, be a better person, turn over a new leaf, make sure that the good parts of your life outweigh the bad parts of your life, okay? That's what they think. They think redemption is something that they do. They think it's something that they achieve for themselves. And they don't know that their only hope is God. That's why they're not here tonight. Their only hope is God. That's why they don't want you to tell them about Jesus. Their only hope is God. They don't know that. That's why they don't read the tract that you give them. Uh, They don't understand all of that or they don't believe it. And yet David makes a statement here that uh, is very important. God is merciful to the repentant. Where do we get that? Notice in verse 12. If he, the sinner that God is angry with, if he does not turn back. You know what he's saying there? There's a possibility. Sinners can turn back to God. Sinners can repent. Sinners can find mercy through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so when you got saved, that time when you were born again, whenever it was, that's exactly what you did. You quit trusting in yourself and you started trusting in Christ as the payment for your sin. You stopped justifying your sin and you admitted your sin to the Lord and you agreed with God about that sin. You quit thinking that you could do better and that you could make something work out and you realized there was only one sacrifice that was acceptable to God and that is the uh, sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having lived a perfect life as a human being, he went to the cross as that unblemished lamb of God. He was nailed to the cross. He stayed on the cross out of his great love for his Father and glorifying the Father and out of his love and mercy toward you, bearing the wrath of the Father for your sin and for my sin and taking all of it for everyone who would ever believe to the point that he could say then, it is finished, literally meaning the debt, the sin debt has been paid and he paid for it in his own body. And so the Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me. It tells us that the wages of sin is death. And when we read in the book of Hebrews, we find out it's appointed unto man once to die and after this, judgment comes. We find that the love of God is expressed for us by what he did for us on the cross. Does God love me? All you have to do is look at the cross and you can see that. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible goes on to tell us in the book of Romans again that if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, we will be delivered, we will be rescued from an eternity in hell. And then it gives us the promise in Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we think about that good news. And we think about the fact that in the midst of this passage where David is talking about this God who is angry with sinners and he uses these war-like terms because the Bible tells us in the New Testament that before we were saved, whether we knew it or understood it or not, we were enemies of God. We were enemies of the cross. And so these warlike terms are being used to describe what it's like to face God without Christ and without the blood of Jesus Christ covering you. And so they don't know that their only hope is Christ. We know that. We should share that. The ESV Study Bible writes about this verse, there is a way out for the persecutors. Namely, they can seek the Lord. This phrase warns the wicked and invites them to repentance. It also helps the faithful to prefer and wish that their oppressors would turn to God rather than suffer punishment. Is that true for you? Jesus said that even with our enemies, those who persecute us, those who curse us, we're to bless them. You do that? I don't always do that. The Bible says we are to actually love our enemies. Why are we supposed to do that? Because God loved us when we were enemies of the cross and enemies of God. 
He demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You think about how we ought to be looking at people, even those who are different politically, those who are different religiously, those who are different philosophically, those who are different morally, whatever it may be, it ought to be that in our heart, and I would ask you to ask the Lord to examine your heart, do we really want them and prefer that they would get saved instead of being punished? And it's amazing how quick we are to take the love, the mercy, and the grace of God and then never extend it to anyone else, even though we are commanded to. So I ask you, look at your heart tonight and think about your worst enemy and think about the people that cause you trouble, maybe in your family, maybe on the job, maybe at school, maybe in your neighborhood, and you get so aggravated at them and you are so distressed by all of them and let me ask you a question. Which would you prefer, that they be punished or that they repent? And we ought to be the ones that would prefer that they would repent. And even in this particular psalm, David writes in there that if they would turn to him, they would find a different relationship with God just as we did. And number four... What the world doesn't understand, what they don't believe, is their doom. God is ready to execute judgment at any time. Judgment is not just something that, well, it's a long time off, way, way off, and all of that. The psalmist here paints a picture of God as a warrior, as a soldier, with a sword that he is sharpening, with a bow and an arrow that is already in place and the bowstring has been pulled back. This is a God who is ready to execute judgment upon this world and upon those who don't know him at any given moment. Do you ever think of God like that? And do you ever think of how close the people that you are running around with, the people that you interact with, how close they are to the judgment of God. My dad used to say, death is just one heartbeat away. Let that sink in. Because that person that you go, oh, they're a good guy and they brought me lasagna when I was sick and oh, they don't know the Lord. In fact, um, I have said this before, but uh, there was a preacher one time, a Southern Baptist preacher, and uh, he was giving an invitation and he looked at some men that were back on the back row who were lost. And he said, you men back there, he goes, I want to tell you, you're good men. And I know you're good men, but you'd be a little better if you'd come to Jesus. That makes me want to vomit because that's not true. The Bible says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. Our problem is not that we're good and we could be better and we just haven't reached our human potential. That's what psychology says. That's what the world might say. That's not what God says. God sees us as we really are. Dead in trespasses and sins. Read Ephesians chapter 2. And that uh, we are awaiting the day when we face the judgment of God. Again, apart from Christ. 
And so every lost person, I don't care how powerful they are, I don't care what position they have, I don't care how rich they are, I don't care how intellectual they are, I don't, I don't care about any of that. When their heart stops beating, where are they going to be? And what are they going to face? And understand this, eternity is irreversible. There are no exit signs in hell. There are no exit doors in hell. And once they go to hell, that's it. And it is long. It is for eternity in hell. And they don't understand that. But you and I are different because God is ready to execute judgment at any time. He will sharpen his sword. Can you picture that? He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. I think one of the greatest emotions that you would find if you could go and spend five minutes in hell would be the emotion of shock. Shock. How did I get here? Why am I here? How did this happen? Can you imagine how terrible it must be to close your eyes in death expecting to wake up in heaven? Maybe you even had a dream or a vision just before you passed and you saw a bright light and peaceful things and great music and all of that. What does that mean? That's not where our hope is. My hope is built on nothing less than a good dream and a peaceful feeling. No. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You see what I'm saying? And how many people, how many people died expecting peace and bliss and joy and like the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 the rich man expected to be in Abraham's bosom didn't he he's shocked he's surprised that he's not and he's really shocked and surprised to see that the beggar Lazarus is in paradise why, why would that be shocking? Because under their understanding, they thought that the rich were blessed of God and the rich can offer bigger sacrifices, greater sacrifices, higher quality sacrifices, and more sacrifices, right? Surely they're going to heaven. They're blessed of God. It's the poor beggar who can't afford to even offer the sacrifice of the poor. That poor beggar who is obviously cursed of God. Can't you tell? And yet he's shocked because he ends up in torment and Lazarus is in bliss. A lot of people are going to find out too late just how terrible it really is because God is ready to execute judgment at a moment's notice. And that's what a lot of people are going to experience. And yet... When you read in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take 
the water. Isn't that good? Because we preach a whosoever will gospel. Anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. And we go out and we tell everybody about it. And we don't know who's going to be saved. We don't know who the elect are. It's irrelevant to us. All we do is tell the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone who comes along. But unfortunately, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 10 is also going to be experienced. Paul said, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and for your faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now listen to this which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment, there's that awful word again, of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. When you think about that and you read that and you think that's what is awaiting, the judgment may come in death as sinners are put into hell until they're called up before the great white throne and then cast into the lake of fire. Horrible. Or it could be that the Lord Jesus comes quickly the way it's described here to take vengeance. You know, the first time he came, it was pretty obscure. A few shepherds came. The wise men came a couple of years later. They saw his star. It's not very many people. Jerusalem didn't flock to Bethlehem and to the stable saying, Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? It was just another sleepy night. Most people weren't even disturbed. And they wouldn't have cared anyway. He came as a baby. Vulnerable. He had to be kept warm. He had to be changed and cleaned up. He had to be fed. He had to sleep. He had to grow. He had to develop. He had to learn how to eat solid food. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn all of those kind of things. And nobody cared much. And there are legends and myths about Jesus when he was a toddler. But they're not in the Bible. They're made up. And nobody in Bethlehem said, Wow, look at the kid with the halo. Nobody said anything like that. Nobody was all that impressed. He's just a good kid. Mary and Joseph's kid, well, at least Mary's. And there were the Snickers, and there was the talk about who is 
real father was. In fact, even after Jesus was an adult, the Pharisees would say things to him like, We know our father. An obvious jab at the Lord Jesus. And that's the way it was until he stood before Pilate and the crowd said, Away with him, let him be crucified. Roman soldiers took him and took him to Golgotha and they nailed him to a cross and then they suspended him as his life's blood flowed away and there he bore the wrath of God in our place until it was finished and then he gave up his spirit and nobody really thought all that much about it except a few that were just afraid that the disciples might steal the body and try to say that he was raised from the dead. Kind of the way it went. And even though a lot of people know about Jesus today and have heard stories about Jesus, there aren't that many worldwide that have really trusted the Lord. They don't think about Jesus. They don't honor Jesus. He's not really on their minds. But there is a day coming, church. And when He comes again, He's not coming in obscurity. Every eye is going to see When he comes again, he's not going to come as a suffering servant. He's not going to come as a humble baby. He's going to come as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not going to come to be nice and kind and to do all of that. He's coming to conquer. He's coming to take over. And when we read what Paul said there, he's going to come and punish and take vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel. That's the way we need to look at the world and we need to understand we are on a mission of mercy and a mission of grace to tell lost and dying sinners that there is a Savior for those who repent and those who believe the gospel. Now since those verses are true, it's the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, eternal word of God, then it means that sinners are in big trouble, eternal trouble. And this would include us, for all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. We're not excluded. And it also means that God will not just look the other way. Exodus 34, 7, he says, I will by no means clear the guilty. Sin must be dealt with. It also tells us that this is why the incarnation matters. Our sin problem is not solved by us. Our sin problem is solved by God Himself. Can you imagine this one who created us, this one to whom the human race has committed high treason against Him, generation after generation, year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day. Let's be real. Hour by hour and minute by minute, humans sin against God. And yet God is the one who came himself in the form of Jesus Christ to solve our sin problem and to offer the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could pay the penalty for our sins and be sufficient. And that's why he endured the cross. And by the way, when you go back and you read, let's back up here a little bit, and you look back at the verses we were covering tonight, And um, I'm going to read them again. And I want you to think about this in terms of this. What we read about here 
in the wrath and the judgment of God is exactly what Jesus experienced on the cross. That on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. Listen to this. God is a just judge, and he judged Jesus in our place perfectly. And God is angry with the wicked every day. When Jesus became sin, God was angry at that sin, and he punished Jesus in divine wrath and anger, and Jesus willingly took it for us. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. The Lord Jesus experienced that. He bends his bow and makes it ready. The Lord Jesus experienced that for you. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. The Lord Jesus bore that instrument of death for you. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. And every one of them for every sin you had committed came upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that he shrieked with a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was at that point that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of Christ. And this is what the world doesn't know or they don't understand, or they just don't believe it. This is our motivation to tell them the truth and tell them the story. And Christmas comes down to this. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name, what? Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And all of that is so he could go to the cross bear the wrath of God that we justly deserved and take it all so that sin would be punished, that sin would be paid for, the justice of God would be satisfied, the innocent would die for the guilty, the blameless would die for those who were filled with sin and rebellion and treachery toward God so that God the Father in His grace and mercy could say to you and to me, it is forgiven, not because I'm just going to look the other way, not because it's no big deal, but because Christ bore it on the cross in his body and paid the price in full. And that's the meaning of Christmas. Don't fall short of seeing and understanding the reason for the baby being laid in the manger was so he could grow up and die and suffer all of that in our place so that we wouldn't have to. And by the way, he is still saying, let those who are thirsty come and drink, just like he did in Revelation. And that's the message that we give. There is a way and there is an escape and there is hope and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ, 
alone. And that is a great message to remember at this time of year. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we think about a lost and dying world, and we wonder sometimes why they're not more interested, why they're not more enthusiastic. Why is it that they don't come begging us to tell them the story? And it's because what we looked at tonight, they don't know it, and they don't believe it even if they did know it. And you're the only hope that they have, and they don't even get that. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be better about witnessing, to be more fervent about praying for those who are lost, to do good to them, as Jesus said, so that our light would shine before men and they would see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Let us look for opportunities, pray about opportunities, take the opportunities to do these things that we might share with them the life-giving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, thank you, Lord, for coming to earth. Thank you for being born as a human. Thank you for being laid in a manger. Thank you for growing up. Thank you for living a sinless life. And thank you for going to the cross. And thank you for taking the sword and the arrows of the wrath of God in our place. Because we never could have borne it, but you did. Thank you. Thank you for heaven. Thank you for the mansions that you prepared for us. Thank you, Father, that you're coming again and you're going to bring us with you when you come back and conquer this earth. And the Bible says we are going to reign with you. And we understand we're the most undeserving, but oh, how gracious, kind, and merciful you are. And all the glory goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us think about those people who need to hear the message. Let us pray for them. And let us honor and glorify you, especially as we think about this season of the year, to tell the world not only that Jesus came, but why he came. And help them to see it. Help them to understand it. Help them to be terrified of what awaits them apart from Christ. That they might run to the cross, cling to the cross, bow their knee before you and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and find life in his name. And we pray all of this, Lord, for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.